Peter Piper, Peter Pecker, Pepper, Peppers. On, on the main from. Main from Bumble. I'm just playing with my proboscis here, Tom. Bumble. Ignore. Does that a nice, uh, nice tonality and creme when it's angled like that? Yeah. I've got the tip just angled towards me there. The little, <laughs> little opening at the end there, so they can pick up all the audio. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> very suggestive. Mm. Mm. On the program. Well, uh, uh, fitting uh, beginning to the episode with uh, this guy. Yeah, now, Rod, we haven't heard from Jordo, the muscle doctor, for mm. a couple of weeks now. So mm. we're going back to a bit of biomechanics. I actually had a shout out on um, on uh, just a post, or a post I put up. Uh, Chad from uh, Queensland uh, gave us a shout out and said, "Bring back the muscle doc." So, uh, well, this is for you, Chad. Uh, all for Chad. Uh, all for Chad. Chad awesome. Rogers. How are you, mate? Uh, is he Queensland now? Yeah. yeah well, right. he gets all over the place. Right, okay. Don't you, Chad? He's, yeah. If he's not here, he's he's over in uh, Kuwait, Dubai, and then he's back, Sydney, uh, Queensland. So, man, this is all the stuff that I miss out on not mm. being on um, he's up, he's up, social uh, media. He's up probably not too far from uh, Tyrone. Ah, uh, good old Tyrone. <laughs> Tyrone. We're going <laughs> to get him on the program. We've got to get him on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> get him to come on and crack a few farts <laughs> <laughs> like he does at PICP3 yeah. uh. and Andre Benoit's advanced hypertrophy course yeah, yeah. consistent consistency is key yeah. Tom <laughs> yeah very yeah. good good old Tyrone but um, shakes and whatnot. the muscle doctor Jordan Shallow mm. uh, doctor of chiropractics he's going to be back on today we're talking about Jack the Mofo. knee We've been through shoulder and hips, mm. so now we're doing the knee, and then final episode will be on the lower back. Big climax at the end with the lower back. <laughs> the crescendo. Now, interestingly enough, Rod, and we started this conversation, I'm, I forget how we actually got onto it, but we were talking about uh, the okay. transfer of yeah. being in team sports and other sort of more traditional sport-based arenas and the transfer from an athlete who competes in that environment over to the lone wolf sport mm. of powerlifting. Well, yeah, I think it, I think it sort of came from, um, well, you know, he's come from a background of, of, of the team sport and playing under certain adversity. And I think we were sort of going to, is it, does he, is he challenged by, you know, does he have two left socks that he puts on and, uh, you know, pink and a, a blue strap that he likes to use with lifting? Like what goes in with the, the psychological demands of a, of a, yeah, like you said, a, a lone wolf sport like powerlifting. Mm. And um, pretty interesting hearing what he had to say uh, from his, because uh, pro, pro hockey. hockey background, yeah. Yeah. What, what was traveling the, around borrowing <laughs> he forgot his skates yeah so he you know used someone else's two, skates two, 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 he did it on his hands two, you know, <laughs> he put the skates on his hands and just did handstands all the way yeah. around you know but um, and uh, interesting to hear he will uh, he, he will train in a, a variety of um, environments to, to you know prepare him for by the sounds of it he doesn't really need it having played at that uh, elite level of uh, sport and, and yep. but um you know, going out of his way to uh, to use different bars, different gyms. You know, uh, yeah, different uh, times bit, of the day. Different times of the day. Yeah, yep. it's uh, quite a undervalued part of the process to make yes. sure that your consistency is good on the day, because you know, so many. Um, not that I, you know, uh, involve myself in the powerlifting or, or weightlifting arena. Uh, but I do know a lot of guys and girls that do, and um, there is, a, by the sounds of it, a lot of superstition that goes into it, and, and they're going to have the right right things, and you know, the right coloured underpants, and you know, a certain mm. uh, a certain bar that they like, and a certain rack at the gym. Like, I can't, I can't use that rack. I, I got to go get my dude. What, you know, like yeah. what? 
Um, and I totally get that, and I do that because I'm, yes. you know, me and and you know, you probably have little things that you like to do, but it's of zero consequence to us because we're, you know we're not uh, competing in a powerlifting comp, right. or uh, you know, yeah. there's no absolute performance. Uh, Mm. So we can be a little weird and, and, and put plates on, you know, the right way and uh, and all that type of stuff and get the favourite, uh, you know, rack that we like to, you know, the favourite bench we like and all that type of stuff. Mm. But, yeah, it was really, really interesting. And um, I just wonder if any of the listeners do do that sort of stuff as well. Or Look, I certainly think there's a lot of value in changing training environments. Mm. Over the course of a week, I usually train in usually three different gyms yeah. throughout the course of the week. Yep. I just And sometimes I'll rotate through... If I have a good workout in one gym and I, for whatever reason, I enjoyed that, I'll I'll maybe start training oh. there for a few workouts. Yeah, nice. And until I get Very good. until that gets a bit stale, and I will move to another one. And, and yeah, because the benefit of having the old uh, Anytime Fitness membership is yes, you know, so home base is at Icon, mm-hmm. and I can do, train there a couple of days a week mm-hmm. when I'm in there, and then I can float around and go to a few mm. different places. And yeah, if you want some uh, some some nice. Uh, Fresh eye candy, a bit, a bit of fresh meat to look yeah. at. You know, you check out some more of the commercial gyms in peak hour. You know, it can be <laughs> perhaps not the best uh, training no. environment, but but I certainly I don't do that because uh, I like routine. But uh, but it will be okay. I'm going to train here until I'm sick of it. Then okay, boom, yep. cancel. Okay, I'm going to train here yeah. now. Yes, boom. Nah, sick of this now. Too many people talking to me. Nah, I'm going to go because you know you know what I'm like with people. You know, just yeah put up with them but uh, you know when they start talking there's doing too much you know it's uh, time to move on but mm. uh, yeah I, I, I do like uh, changing up the, the training environment and, and often it can be good to uh, do a block of training finish it then uh, certainly with the anytime you know 24 hour memberships it's great because you pick one near, another one nearby and then, yep. then another training block um, so I think that definitely has some merit to because you know, sometimes we get we get uh, a little too caught up in our routine and be a little stale in training, and uh, sometimes a freshen up with the environment, a, a really cool new gym, and or going somewhere that caters for your chosen training modality a little more, like a lift performance center where I based myself at. You know, heavy weightlifting and powerlifting. Uh, they got uh, you know group classes in there, a lot of platforms. So. You know, if you're a powerlifter that that uh, is training in a fitness first or any time club where there's there's not a platform and, yeah, and you can't bang the weights and all that yeah. type of stuff, maybe training in this environment would be would be a lot better for you. So I mm. think that definitely has some merit. But uh, interesting stuff. And I think it also applies, Rodden, to productivity and mm. and just generally running your business. And yeah, we had an in- interesting conversation up in Brisbane because I quite like to I'll move different environments when I'm working as well, and I like to certain cafes on certain yes. days. And yeah. Thursdays now I go to the library and, and block myself in there because awesome. that, that works well and uh, we're talking about batching activities and you like to do all uh, yes, yes. programming one day yes. and nutrition plans the next day uh-huh. where I will work on individual by individual and do the program oh. and the nutrition plan Rookie at, era. at the same time Rookie era. two different parts of the brain Tom yeah. one's a creative and the other's a bit more methodical numbers calculating that yeah. type of stuff. So that was uh, an interesting insight that I, I took from that discussion. And I yeah. think what I have learned is that what's working will work for a period of time. Yeah. And then you'll need to tweak it and freshen it up and change the environment to enter a new burst of productivity. Yes. So these productivity. The systems that you build around yourself to get all your work done and, and be efficient with what you're doing, they they evolve as much as your training periodization or anything else. 100%. I completely mm. agree. Interesting. Very, very cool. Now, Rawdon, before we go to uh, Jordo to talk all about the knee, um, we didn't discuss discussing this, but we may as well. We had a bit of a play around this morning mm. with a live audio broadcasting app. So mix a lot. So, so mix a lot. <laughs> 
And so we're gonna be we're gonna be doing some live broadcasting yeah. at some stage in the next couple of weeks. I reckon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is on the back of uh, I suppose we've uh, we've mentioned it a few times the the trench talk where yep. we just talk about uh, about stuff going on in our week. You know, yep. we're sort of. Uh, Client you know, case studies, yeah, things we're learning, I- I- interesting type of stuff yep. to to us anyway. I don't know whether you guys will find it interesting, but uh, but if you do, you can uh, tune in. But we're thinking about getting um, you know the likes of Brodders on there at various times, and uh, should be should be really really cool. So I guess a, a vehicle for us to sort of get the the, the, the trench talk up and uh, up and running. Yep. You know, nervous excitement, but yes. uh, that should be good. Yeah, Very that'll cool. be good. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, that's to stay tuned for. Let's go to the Muscle Doc Big Jordan Shallow. Cam, this won't work if we're live, mate. <laughs> oh. You're fired. <laughs> Flat battery. No, it's bad play. I just couldn't hear it. There we go. Well, this is exciting again, mm. Gordon. We've got the man behind Prescript mm. and the, the muscledoc.com. Jordan Shallow, mm. Doctor of Chiropractics, joining us back on the line today. We're talking about the knees, which is very exciting. Yeah, it's round three, so we've uh, we've had him, we've we've twisted his arm, that big twenty-inch uh, arm of his. We've yeah. managed to twist it and uh, get him to come on a couple of times previously, which have been absolutely awesome. So round three, we're going to uh, tackle the knee today, mm. which is. Uh, you know, we're probably going to find it's not often the knee that's the issue, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll let Jordan go into that. So, first of all, Jordo, welcome back to the show, mates. It's a pleasure to have you here again. Yeah, no, it's good. You guys are kind of brushing me up on, like, uh, Aussie nomenclature, getting me ready for my trip. <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> yeah, right. Well, we're good at that. Good on you, mate. Well, let's start. I mean, the knee, we were just talking just before we got on air there, Jordan. Yeah. Jordo, you've got some heavy lifting to be doing in the coming weeks. And so you're uh, hampered by a bit of a, a knee twinge at the moment. So you can talk us through that. But before we go into the actual the content of the knee itself, just on your, your own personal approach, mm. you were saying before you're weighing up the benefits of actually mm. training the lower body, squatting, and trying to squeeze out some benefit from training as mm. opposed to managing the pain yeah. and what will give you a better outcome, uh, a better squat when you're down total, here. Total, total. So can you just talk us through what your approach is with that? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's all about being able to take like a really honest and accurate inventory of the severity of kind of the ailments that you suffer from, like knowing when to double down and and play another hand and knowing when to cash in your chips and kind of walk away from the table. Mm. A lot of that comes from comes from experience and and sort of a certain amount of like uh, like physical literacy, like you've you've kind of tuned in um, kind of how, how your body moves when it moves well and what it feels like when it's not moving the way it should. But mm, yeah. but with that too, like from a clinical practice standpoint is, I've also seen objectively from the other side what it looks like when guys aren't moving at their best and when they've kind of suffered an injury that, that might lead them down the road of, of a more conservative approach um, in the, with the end goal of kind of maximizing performance. So sometimes the best thing you can do is, is try and or the most benefit you'll get from training is actually trying to minimize the damage done and yeah. and being able to express more more strength on the platform by, mm. by knowing when to pull back rather than than kind of putting the putting the rubber to the road and really trying to to get the last couple percent out of these few weeks where if you trust the process leading up to it, it's you kind of understand that you know you're you're set up to to lose more than you'd potentially gain. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at right now. Just like you said, dealing with a bit of a a knee quad sort of injury right now. Absolutely fascinating. I might just jump in there first, Tommy, before you take the reins. Um, 
Like, what what's actually changing? Like, would you have squatted, uh, you know, uh, every week leading up to it, or do you miss out on on three weeks of squatting? And and do you actually gain, or is it more of a maintenance of that strength? Uh, and you might be a little under what you were squatting. Like, do you foresee like what would be the outcome at the pro raw? Yeah, I mean, hard to say too because I need to factor in a fairly hefty weight cut on top of that. Plus, yep. you know, international travel and yeah, yeah, four yeah, seminars yeah. and the lot. But I mean, if not making excuses, uh, my decision to consciously scale back from my training, um, at least lower body now, is I, I can approach it with a bit more confidence because my numbers leading up to the point of the sort of the flare up of this injury was was really promising. Yeah. Um, was definitely setting some PRs as far as submaximal volume, and, and to contrast your point there about the importance of the last kind of month or five weeks going yeah. into a show, as far as like a physique, like more from a physique perspective, where it's like physique is going to be entirely predicated on physiology, right? Like you yeah. can't you can't will your way to a to a good <laughs> stage, you know, peak as yeah, far as yeah, yeah. a look goes, where so much of my performance is going to be based off you know psychological like assuredness of like yes. when i get under the heavy weight i'm going to be able to be as aggressive as i can mm. and as confident with my technique as i can be and that to me is going to be able to um is going to be benefit to benefit me on the platform to yes. get a better performance or a better total it'll be psychology trumps physiology when i'm when i'm on the platform whereas yeah. you're you're really you got nowhere to hide um, when you're in a physique sport so you really gotta you know you gotta put the foot down on the training and the diet yes. where for me it's like I can afford to back off because I know so much of my performance is going to be predicated on the preparation psychologically more so than and I can say this at this stage of the game you know maybe a more novice lifter um, not the case but for me knowing where I'm at now it's like just knowing that I can be aggressive when I compete is going to give me the best outcome and, and, and that's a big part of, of that uh, strength and power sports, you know, strongman training, you know, Olympic weightlifting. There, there is that element of you're in a competition. There's, you know, the X amount of guys breathing down your neck. It's, you know, the, 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 the sense of arousal is, is extreme. And, mm. and, and is that something that, that as a powerlifter you always take into consideration? It's like, uh, or does it vary? Like, can it go the other way where they get over aroused and they, mm. they, they just... Uh, get overzealous with the number jumps like uh talk to us about that i'm fascinated yeah, yeah i think a lot of it comes down to frankly like what's your experience with sport outside of the controlled realm of powerlifting yeah you can the guys at the top are are athletes right and they're athletes in a con they were athletes first in a conventional realm yep, like yep. you know they were you know, you'll see gymnasts you'll see track and field guys you'll see uh football guys you'll see mm. people that have had to overcome adversity outside of like oh this gym didn't have calibrated plates or it was yeah. cold in the gym that day or i forgot my pre-workout it's like dealing in can you know quote unquote the conventional realm of sport better psychologically prepares you for, for sure. any type of adversity you'll face whether that's weight cut or or whatever on come game day like you know you forget your wrist wraps or uh, your wrist wraps aren't sanctioned by that that governing body of federation that you're competing in where you know that to someone who the only sport has been the controlled realm of powerlifting could be like psychologically like at the US Open last year I went into my bench attempts and my wrist wraps that I brought to San Diego with me weren't the company wasn't sanctioned by the federation I was competing in 
So I use the wrist wraps of a 123 pound girl from my gym to bench with. And I was like, yeah, whatever. It's like, you don't even think about it at that point. Cause mm. I've been in hockey tournaments across Canada and forgotten my skates. So I've had to use <laughs> someone else's skates for seven games in six days that didn't even fit my feet. So it's like, oh, <laughs> these wrist wraps are two millimeters shorter than my other ones. It's like, that doesn't even register on my radar of, yeah. of alterations and perception. So I honestly think a lot of it comes down to a sport history outside of lifting that's just sort of, it's trained the mental preparedness and trained you to be a little bit more, um, a little bit more adaptive when yeah. things don't go exactly as planned. I was having a conversation with uh, two of my best mates the other night and we were talking about... Chambo? Yeah, Chambo was a part of it. We were mm-hmm. talking about pressure situations in sport and how we respond to them. And, and my thing is, because I play lots of sport and particularly when there's pressure and you, you want skill, Ooh, still maintain tricky. your skill, it can be really hard because the change in your physiology is so overwhelming when you feel, yeah. when you feel pressure. And my thing was just to always, whatever it is, just be aggressive. And I would have probably a 50-50 strike rate. So sometimes it, it, it would, would come off, it off yeah. other times it wouldn't. And, and we were talking about, you know, what's the difference with someone like a Michael Jordan? Does he actually feel the pressure and literally thrive on it? Or does he feel the same amount of pressure that I feel when there's pressure? And it's like, well, fuck it, I've got one choice. I'm just going to go for it. Hmm. And then if it comes off, it does. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But where there are some people that seem to have such a high percentage success yeah. rate in huge pressure yeah. that they must I, just thrive on the physiology. Yeah, yeah it's hard to say. I, I mean, some people it looks as if it transcends them entirely. Yeah. Like they just cross a threshold of performance where it's like, yep. you know, it might seem amazing, but they're going to hit that free throw in the first quarter in the first five minutes of the game mm. where it seems amazing that they don't miss at the end but that the raised stakes is something they've trained into them from all their performance because they're amazing in the fourth quarter when it's fourth and long or when mm. the time is running on the clock they're just equally consistent it doesn't mm, yeah. i don't think it benefits them i just think i think what's amazing is that they're not denigrated by it like yeah it, it's a little it's a little obscure reference but are you familiar with the gentleman named alex honnold no, no. So Alex, I mean, he's, he's his name's a little bigger out here because um, he's a, so he's called with um, he's what's called a free soloist. So imagine just walking up to a mountain face, uh, like in, in shorts and a t-shirt, and just climbing. Right. Right. And so Alex Honnold has free solo climbed the three biggest faces in Yosemite National Park, which is a fairly world-renowned national park based out of California, about three and a half right. hours from where I'm at right now. Yep. And if you see these faces in, in person, they're they're monolithic, like they're daunting mountain faces and mm. they're they're unforgiving. And it's like to assess the psychology of like a high performer when the stakes are yeah. I mean past a certain point, like, you know, there's there's attenuated exposure where you can get over a certain fear of heights. But like once you're past like there's no difference in ramifications if he falls from 80 feet or if he falls from 1600 feet right yeah so this guy will literally just walk up to these mountains and just start climbing so you got to imagine there's not like there's not a an increase or decrease of performance based off pressure it's just a transcendent of the situation and all he knows is to perform yes i think with like there's a thing in powerlifting where people go to the same gym they go to. They use yeah. the same plates. They they're around the same people, and it's like you need to train the psychological, just like 
like they'll purposely train end ranges of motion in powerlifting. Like guys will do deficit deadlifts, so they'll do like, oh, okay, so my back rounds a little extra on a really heavy pull. I'll have had time built up in that range of motion, or I'm gonna train like a safety bar squat in case I get like bent over on a heavy attempt. Yep. I'll have the upper back strength to overcome it and not get injured. But they don't they don't apply that fringe training to the psychological. They just mm. sort of they stay within the very comfortable confines of, mm. of their gym where it's like mm. for me, I mean I've been on the road more weekends this year than I've been home. So it's mm. like I'm training in a new gym in a new city mm. at five AM, twelve at night, like just all mm. over the place. So yeah. it's almost like a it's a luxury to me when I get to step in at ten AM step on a scale, have a few meals, yeah. sit back, relax, I'm well rested. Yeah. I, you know, I'm somewhat familiar. I've been in the same city for you know more than like a day and a half, which has been yeah. the case lately. So training the psychological and making the uncomfortable, not comfortable, but at least familiar, I yeah, think is familiar. something that could really go a long way and benefit people, especially when like you see, especially in Australia, how poor people perform when they come in internationally. Yeah. Um, it's something I don't know. Maybe got gravity's a little different with the toilets flushing the other direction or something. But <laughs> the Australian the Australian platform has not been kind to international lifters. But I think you, you know that going in, like you can almost you can assign that variable as a constant. Like it's gonna suck. So when you train, train yeah. at five in the morning. Train yeah. that yeah. after yeah. ten hour shift. It's the ability that the gym is always there where it's like in conventional sports it's like you have the pitch from this time to this time yep. you know whether your girl just broke up with you whether you got a shitty day at work or whatever mm. it's like teams practicing at this time get your shit together mm. i think that just builds a certain resiliency in conventional athletes that can otherwise be worked around in like the kind of the solo lone wolf pursuit of powerlifting Absolutely awesome. fascinating. Um, I, I will give you the, my two uh, two cents worth on that one, Tommy. And, yeah. and unfortunately, I haven't played any. But there's something that I used to do that I could relate to this. And um, it was uh, when I'd be riding my motorbike, so a sports bike. Oh, yeah. And then the police would, uh, you'd be doing a wheel stand or something, and then all of a sudden the cops are behind you. And, the you know, I never, anytime I, I, I did, it was it, the adrenaline would go. Like, I never did it enough to really, it to be accustomed. So, you know, I got kept getting booked all the time. But... But I had friends that would would actually thrive on. They would bait the police, and then, but they're so cool, calm, and collected. It, it, you know, they, I guess, desensitize them to the the fact that they're breaking the law and the police are chasing them. But, yeah, absolutely amazing. But I think for them, it, 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 it they don't think about the fact that they're doing it. They're just doing because they do it all the time. Much like old mate climbing the rock rock yeah. wall. And uh, when I was in, um, this will interest you. Uh, Jordo, when I was over uh, in Colorado with with Zach, so a guy called Zach Strever works at a Colorado barbell club. Uh, he he's ex uh, military, so did you know a couple of tours over in Afghanistan, and um, he was talking about like initially I didn't you know do, do you talk about that? I knew he had post traumatic stress disorder, and um, but, you know I'm fascinated by it. And he did volunteer. Started talking about it when we were at dinner, and I and I asked him. You know whether he freaked out, like when when shit was going crazy, what happened? And for him, mm. he said it just everything just slowed down, and, and he actually thrived on the you know the, the, the bombs going off and the guns blazing and the just the sheer chaos and anarchy from the outside looking in. But for him, it was just everything was slowed down. He was just doing everything that. So for him, he just thrived in that element. Like up until then, he it would just be normal, you know, day to day stuff. But then when shit hit the fan, that, that's when he would just drop down a. You know, and, and and much like I assume, 
you know, like you're talking about Jordan, these guys that, or, or Michael Jordan, you know, that it's just, you know, for them, it's it's perceived differently to how the outside looking in. You know, mm. them, it's a it's a completely uh, different version of reality, and and I think that's uh, that's what it is. But absolutely fascinating to hear his perspective on things. But um, yeah, it's an crazy. interesting mindset when you bring up PTSD because if you look at the research on like the infantries and the divisions that suffer more from it and like if we're trying to extrapolate back to sport and maybe kind of draw some draw some underlying commonalities between like high performing athletes and high pressure situations you'll find that in the military that it's it's the reactive group that suffers the worst from it yes like if, if you're just kind of a grunt foot soldier and you're on patrol and then the bombs start flying and if you're not adequately broken down to the point where you're your mindset is that of always on the offensive. When you have to get defensive in that situation, it seems then that's when it starts to permeate your subconscious and people seem to suffer from PTSD. Like yeah. knowing a fair amount of like special forces and SEALs and getting to work with a lot of them out here in the Bay Area, they're they're always, I mean, they're, they look to inflict the fear that'll psychologically damage someone else. So it's again with patrolmen that don't seem to suffer from it. It's they've been broken from that base reactionary fear and been programmed to rewire that as an offensive. And I think if when you know you look at guys, you know, and like Michael Jordan keeps coming up when you know when the rubber hits the road and and things the balls in his his hands and there's three seconds left, he's just all offense. Like you can't. There's hesitation where it's like you can't think about making a mistake because yeah. the second you hesitate that's when shit goes wrong yeah man. Uh, so i think just being able to train your ability of like your mindset to always be in the offensive and it's a little a bit of a stretch from a powerlifting standpoint because it's like all right guys and that's an imagery i don't like to cross and i really don't like when the fitness industry you know oh i'm going to war it's like no yeah. you're going to lift weights in a climate <laughs> control room you're not yeah, going to war like relax fun but for me, it's like being able to train that, like I, I've talked about before, like the aggression and that psychological ability to to have a certain like almost confidence of overcoming. And I think that's what kind of really separates high performers. Yes. Mm. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. All right, Jordo, one more question just on your own preparation. So without any actual squatting, will you be doing uh, oh, split squats or, or any kind of other... Uh, leg work just to try and maintain muscle mass or, or anything or what's the approach there yeah I mean right now I, I'm kind of in all sorts as far as like the actual day-to-day pain that I'm in um, so right it's recovery 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 right. I mean I have you know recovery is going to exist on a spectrum of, of passive range of motion first so right now I'm fighting tooth and nail day in day out just to get you know knee flexion at a degree of hip flexion that will get me a squat that will get me white lights across the board and that's passive like that's having you know putting my foot up on like a roller chair pulling my knee into my chest totally letting my the muscles of my leg relax and allowing the you know me to externalize that movement just to test the the tensile strength of of the tendons the ligaments and the soft tissues not even considering the the role of the muscle right now yeah Um, so i'm just trying to reinstate end ranges of motion so when when i can load i know at the very least i have the passive mobility to get there then i'll worry about you know increasing stability and then increasing strength or at least regaining my ability to express the strength i have so right now there'll be minimal 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 loading of the upper body or lower body right now like bit of cardio 
um, very, you know, very low angle flexion at the hip and knee, um, just to get some blood moving in there. No, nothing of impact. So, I mean, right now I've literally been up at 5am every day on an elliptical for 45 minutes. Yep. Uh, and then, then it's, you know, I slowly start to go into the weeds on, on the deeper anatomy stuff. Um, and just based off my previous injury and what I'm dealing with now, it's going to be fairly, um, a fairly tailored approach. Um, but hopefully that that specificity will, will help me kind of beat the clock as far as overcoming this injury and actually getting uh, getting to the platform in you know thirty or so days in one piece and hopefully a PR in the total if possible. All right, Jordan. So uh, patellofemoral pain syndrome. Oh, yes. I mean that is every that's second like the blanket term for every knee injury that ever occurs. Mm. So you just gonna do step ups, mate. Yeah. Those little. So first of all, what is that syndrome? Yeah, jeez, uh, oh, that's um, uh, yeah, knee pain is essentially that's a fancy Scrabble term for knee pain. Uh, I just think there is a certain I mean, in powerlifting. There is everyone does the same thing, but everyone neglects the same thing as well. So knee pain is is usually a manifestation of the very similar imbalances across the board, and then we can go down a list of decreasing. Uh, decreasing orders of likelihood that your knee pain is stemming from something else. But if we're playing a numbers game, patellofemoral pain has some some very common causes, um, some very common accessory movements that are deprioritized or altogether thrown the wayside. Um, so a lot of us can get, and a lot of us being powerlifters and including the general population, bodybuilding, whatever, um, can get very far by kind of going through you know, maybe the step up is, is a little rudimentary uh, of an intervention, but there are things that can be done uh, to improve knee pain to a, a, a great degree that okay. that seem like it's it's very blanket statement across the board. Um, but, you know, common things present commonly. So they don't go looking for zebras. Right. So um, for me, it's a patellofemoral pain in the powerlifting community is, is a few very uh, it's a few very basic overlooked exercises both from like a corrective or movement preparation standpoint but also too from like an actual strength progression standpoint um powerlifters just seem to put themselves in a smaller and smaller box until the only thing they can do is their competition lifts and then something goes awry and that's the end of a career so uh yeah patellofemoral pain by and large is something that across the board can be unpacked with a certain level of accuracy for a large percentile of the people okay okay now i'm gonna jump and i know you but I will say that that I certainly do have uh, knee pain, and uh, I've got the pen and pad out. Well, Tom has actually; he's going to make notes before for me. But uh, interested with this one, uh, finding out what I can actually do uh, to uh, improve my situation, Jordan. Okay, so we talked about hip stability in the past. Mm-hmm. Now, it, from a research perspective, hip stability is is kind of front and center as far as a correlated factor strongest represented in research that's going to help be an indicator of patellofemoral pain but i think for that's based off of subjects that maybe oversimplify or aren't really able you're not really able to extrapolate out from those subjects and apply them to you know guys that are a bit stronger than your average college age well-trained athlete whatever that means yep. um, so for me it's so to move past that like you know you talked about your lateral step up and all that so the idea with that is tension so usually the pain that people describe in the knee is two places um it's going to be the the lateral superior pole of the patella so like kneecap 
top of the kneecap off to the side, like kind of where your iliotibial band yeah. connects in. Um, so off to the or, uh, off to the outside of the kneecap. Exactly. Yep. Or you're going to get kind of inside. So it's going to be usually anterior knee pain on one side of the patella or not. Um, now, assuming that most people will go the lateral step up route first to triage the injury. So like without being too redundant and recapping our hip stability lecture, because we could pretty much do that exact same lecture and have that affect um, the, the, the integrity of the knee or the perception of pain at the knee. Yep. Okay. There's a kind of a few more, a few more tricks up the sleeve as far as, okay, we'll leave that hip lecture aside. So the, the glutes and the hips and the things that are going to stabilize sort of proximally the femur, um, that's half the battle. So if we think when powerlifting, by and large, a majority of powerlifters are going to be low bar squatters, right? They're going to yep. help improve the leverages, decrease the amount of work by, you know, improving the ratio of force over distance. It's yep. a, usually a fair statement to say. Yep. Now, yep. in order for them to go into that low bar position, they're going to have to, they're going to change the combined center of gravity of the bar and themselves. So in that, in that accommodation for that change combined center of gravity, they're going to have to abduct their hips. They're going to widen their stance, essentially, is what I'm saying, especially yep. in Australia where 100% of your meets are, or at least what I've seen, are going to be in a monolift. There's going to be no walkout component. No. You're going to be in knee wraps. That is Aussie powerlifting pretty much 101. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have, at least from what I've seen again, um, meets that are done predominantly in sleeves. I don't see that too often. And then um, meets are going to have to walk your squat out of a rack. Yep. Uh, so with that wider stance kind of being more accessible based off of the parameters of the squat in the lift itself, the wider stance is going to leave us kind of prompting more of this this mechanical disadvantage because i want you to think of it this way like if you were to prep a guy for a show like a bodybuilder or a classic someone who's worried about the aesthetics of the legs yep. right you're gonna want to you know the vmo the teardrop is going to be something that's aesthetically pleasing for someone in in, in a physique sport yep. and time and time again regardless of guru regardless of hypertrophy coach the the isolated terminal knee extension on the quad machine or just like locking out on a leg press is usually most coaches go to exercise right yep. yep so what that does and what bodybuilders will do intuitively is they'll align that hip knee and ankle so i think we may have cued this for like the the walking lunge and the single leg rdl yeah. where it's like you want to align hip knee and ankle and a good indicator of that is can we contract that VMO then we'll know that femur is in a straight line and the glute will have brought it there when we squat in a low bar position wide stance and a monolith with wraps we're going to adopt a very abducted hip position so our knee is going to be outside of the plane of our femoral acetabular joint our hip so initially out of the gate we're going to put a lot of stress through that medial knee but when we finish the movement of the squat, we're not finishing like we would through a narrow stance front squat or an Olympic lifting squat where the end range of motion comes from that loaded terminal knee extension and our hip position has rather been neutral the entire time. And a lot of that, the, the competition low bar squat is going to come from a, a movement of the hips from the posterior to the anterior. That's how you're going to finish a squat. When you're, at, when you're at a meet, a lot of times when someone gets up out of the hole, they're approaching that 90 degree point of, of ascension through the squat you'll hear a lot of bystanders and coaches start yelling hips 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 they'll try and yeah. cue that person to move the hips from the posterior into the anterior to finish the rep 
where it's that's not really how our knees are meant to handle weight we're not meant to handle weight in these mechanically advantageous positions we're meant to handle weight with our ankles knees and hips aligned so what ends up happening is you take any power lifter from you know that's a low bar squatter put him in a pair of shorts like uh, like a pair of north american shorts not the stuff that you pass off as shorts over there um, <laughs> i've got a pair on right now <laughs> yeah yeah if you, Short call, shorts. you look like you're part of like the 76 like uh boston celtics or something <laughs> so like a normal length shorts that like an average male would wear in north america roll them up about like maybe half the distance to where your shorts are now mm-hmm, basically mm-hmm. ice like look at a power lifter from the vmo downward Terrible. they're the most physically unimpressive human beings you'll ever see in your life embarrassing like they're yeah and like you could and we got a couple of the biggest squatters in the world in our gym and if you just saw them from like four inches above the knee and down (laughs) you wouldn't even think they worked out Hmm. but a lot of their mass is you know through the upper thigh into the hips where there's going to be that completion of the movement through that anterior posterior movement of the pelvis uh, of the hips itself but what happens, that discrepancy of the VMO is is going to play a huge role in the in what little functional stability there is of the patellofemoral joint, right? So if we think of the knee, a lot of its structure is propped, or a lot of its stability is propped up on a structure. So we have lateral meniscus, medial meniscus, ACL, MCL, PCL, um, then we have the patella, the quad tendon, and the patella tendon. So it's like very little is active tissue it's all ligaments it's not tendons right whereas composed to like the shoulder where the shoulder is almost primarily uh, a network of tendons that are acted on by muscles that we can strengthen to appreciate the stability by increasing the tensile strength of the tendon by strengthening the muscle yep the knee it's like whatever function we have like so the vmo and its oblique fibers um kind of tracking the patella lateral and then the the iliotibial track as it relays the stability of the hip or in some cases lack of stability of the hip plays this like sort of power struggle at the position of the patella Uh, and that's where a lot of things kind of go awry for people is they have unstable hips so that'll lead to a lateral tracking in the patella and because they finish the movement with the hips and never in loaded terminal knee extension of the knee the vmo gets underdeveloped so there's like this this imbalance of force vectors that pulls the patella laterally as that tracks through the, the femoral condyle inflection and extension of the knee that's where a large majority of the issues stem from now you don't need to dig too far on the internet to find out that the vmo is potentially uh, uh, something that could help benefit you in keeping your knees functionally stable yep. um, when it comes to you know squatting heavy weights but there's a, there's a lesser known there's a lesser known mechanical advantage to training another muscle group that is altogether overlooked in the majority of powerlifters, and that's your adductors. So, you know, a lot of your listeners, if, if you know they've if they're from personal training or a coaching background, they, you know, the terminal knee extension with a band has probably worked its way in in some sort of rehab setting, but that is gonna that is gonna give you a a functional pull. But if we think about like when squats go bad, it's usually not at full depth. It's usually as people are coming out of the hole. So let's think about when that VMO is actually going to be active. It's usually active in a, in a part of the movement where tracking is no longer going to be an issue. So the real thing that I would focus on strengthening, um, from a, if we're going down this, this tracking route as a, as a major, 
uh, mechanism of patellofemoral pain stemming from hip instability and so forth yep. is actually your adductor group. So your adductor group helps reinforce your media patellofemoral ligament. So a lot of people are worried about, you know, the patella tracking laterally and like uh, the shear force on the quad that that will cause by the knee coming in, the patella going out, where it's the adductor group kind of helps solidify and reinforce the medial patellofemoral ligament, which is proven in research to have an ability to retain the position of the patella. So let's not worry about like strengthening a muscle or not primarily or solely focus on strengthening that VMO as a counterforce because the VMO is only going to be active in a position where the likelihood of the hip tracking laterally or tracking the patella laterally during that range of motion where the VMO is active is is it's 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 just incongruous with with muscle firing timing in the squat mm -hmm. so what you're more likely to benefit from is actually strengthening and stabilizing the adductors to reinforce the medial patellofemoral ligament in order to help just keep the tensile strength within that ligament to keep that patella in place similar almost in a in a in a, in a, in a way of like um, the role of the long head of the biceps in the shoulder so if you take the long head of the biceps in the shoulder and you cut it you're going to get about six millimeters and this is averaging off research but six millimeters of superior translation so you're humerus is going to jam up in your shoulder about six millimeters so think if you cut someone's medial patellofemoral ligament that patella is way is just going to drift you know 60 percent more lateral just mm. without that 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 uh retaining factor of that ligament okay so reinforcing the adductors is a great way not only to build stability within the pelvis which is obviously going to be beneficial in the squat but that medial patellofemoral ligament is so crucial in that retaining of that patella's position as we track through parts of the range of motion where the vmo is not going to do you any good anyways um so for me that's like that's a little extra depth that most people don't look into and now mm -hmm. what does that look like in training um, a lot of times i'll integrate adductor work with core work just because the, the, the role of both is usually to stabilize the pelvis um you know i'm not saying get on your um adductor machine in the local gym but yeah, you'd yeah. be surprised how, how many soccer moms can get on an adductor machine and they're way stronger than um than your average powerlifter that can squat yeah. you know three or four hundred pounds or three or four hundred kilos even so yeah. um that to me is just that's usually a missing piece that most high performing athletes would benefit from you know if if the body's this big tensegrity model and and everything has its place to, to arbitrarily rule out a certain group of exercise because you you think it's effeminate or you think it's something that's more physique related it's like if it's there after you know the hundreds of thousands of years of evolution it has a purpose yeah right yes. so it has a purpose in, in getting you through the rigors that life's going to throw at you so if you're going to maximize the rigors you're putting on your body it'll benefit you to leave no stone unturned and when these injuries happen you can usually look to the thing you you're not doing or the thing you're vehemently opposed to that's probably going to be your undoing okay so the the, the yes no machine or the the adductor machine that, that you called it <laughs> uh, <the laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, yes, no, no, exactly. But yes. that, that actually has, you, you, you would actually recommend that to potentially strengthen the adductor? Or it's, you it's part of my rehab protocol right now, and I am shockingly weak at it. 
Like, really? shockingly, shockingly weak. Like, literally, the soccer mom next to me at 5 in the morning is kicking <laughs> my ass. Wow. And I'm, and I'm sore. And again, it's it's almost like, um, oh, what would I compare it to? Well, it's just something that if I, if I, if 90 pounds is making me sore on something, yeah, that's a huge discrepancy to my top end strength, right? Definitely. The, the role of the adductors on hip health is so under, is so underappreciated. Yeah. Um, be, and it's not so much, uh, you know, you need to PR your your yes no machine. If we're speaking in the <laughs> politically correct parlance yeah, of the Australian yes, language, yes. Uh, but it's more so like it's about it's about creating balanced counter vectors to the muscles that we're going to be really dominant. So it's like yep. the, our our glutes are going to be strong. That is inevitable. If we're going to squat big, you're going to have strong hips. Hmm. So it's like it's at least trying to keep up the other side of the equation, right? Mm -hmm. So these things happen at severe imbalances. And for me, it's something that I didn't, I haven't neglected, but clearly the, the, I mean, some of my injuries in the past have led me to a point where I would really benefit from, uh, from have strengthening that leading into this and probably mm -hmm. could have helped prevent the injury I'm currently suffering, uh, suffering with. And I mean, pain is knowledge really fast. Yes. And it's only a mistake if you don't learn from it. So for me, it's, you know, varying degrees of hip flexion and adduction are going to be beneficial. Um, where that's the one limitation with the yes, no machine, if you yeah. will, yeah. is that you're going to be fixed into a certain degree of hip flexion as you go through hip adduction. Uh, I like, um, if you ever do like an ab wheel exercise. Yep. I putting like do. a med ball between your legs and adducting there as you go through the varying degrees of hip flexion extension uh, and then oh, yeah, the yeah, abs yeah. and the, the adductors will kind of co-contract to stabilize the pelvis. So that's one of my favorite core ad core work, but it's also something that could be beneficial as, as far as um, training the adductors in the role of stability because it's not so much about exerting force and going through like a stretch contract cycle. So it really kind of hones in on neurologically loading that correctly. But I think you should be able, I mean, the average powerlifter should be able to walk into a gym, sit down on the adductor machine, <laughs> and then bring the entire stack for 50 reps, no issues. Yeah, yeah. And just make that, sure when you are using that one, of course, Jordo, the cardinal rule, you don't look anyone in the eye. <laughs> you know, if or, go, if, or you purposely look people in the eye, depending on how <laughs> I you know what I'm going to do. Is I'm going to bring my plaid shirt. Yeah. Oh, yes. yes. Nick Tate loved that one. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and I'm going to go to Fitness First on George Street. <laughs> And I'm gonna like basically yeah. say, hey, yeah, that's Nick, that's my cousin, my cousin law. And I'm just gonna yeah. look everyone dead in the eye when I do it. Hell yeah, <laughs> excellent. Beautiful. What were you gonna say, Tommy? Well, actually, that was gonna be my question, Jordo. So in the last two segments we've done, the focus has been on neurological loading as opposed to the anatomical loading. So the adductor muscle can be quite a nice, big, meaty bit of the the inner yeah, thigh. It's, it's good for closing the box gaps. So. Yes. What's the, I guess, the kind of the ratio of wanting to hypertrophy the muscle and then also getting the, the neurological activation so it can resist force happening as well? Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be that, that appreciation of strength that'll come with an increase in cross-sectional area, right? Like, yeah. there's that's an inextricable link. It's not as one-to-one -one as people would like it to be. Like, Phil Heath isn't exactly showing up to my meets and kicking my ass when it comes to strength. He's jacked <laughs> yeah. as hell, and that'll give him some appreciation of strength. But but for me, it's, again, especially when the role of the adductor in the exercise in question is going to be that of kind of like a, like a dynamic stability role. 
then I think the neurological plays a huge factor. But I think with how overlooked it is as a trained muscle group, most people would benefit in just feeling what it's like to fire the muscle. Because uh, even the adductor group as a as a designation, I mean, we're talking five muscles here that span the inside of the leg, that cross the knee, that have secondary and tertiary action that are different from muscle to muscle. So like your pectineus and adductor brevis, which are your high your high adductors, your groin muscles, if you will, they're gonna play a role in secondary flexion. And then you gotta look at your adductor magnus, which is gonna have 90% of its fibers coming from the ischial tuberosity. So that's gonna act more like a hamstring and a hip extender. And then you're gonna have your uh, your gracilis and your and your um, your adductor longus, which are gonna then play the role of uh, of adductor and extender of the hip as well. But they're gonna be more centered on the on the front of the pelvis. All of the while, that's gonna be centering the position of the femur within the acetabulum or the femur head within the acetabulum. So you can really lose sleep at night if you want to go kind of deep in about the the secondary and tertiary uh, anatomy of the adductors and. If you're looking to kind of ascend in strength quickly and you want to do it relatively injury free, I mean, it's almost hypocritical for me to talk in that language right now because I'm kind of put <laughs> up. But in like in the scope of rehabilitation, like if you really want to recover from something fast, you want to, you know, you want to look a little deeper than your, you know, your physio's little banded exercises and really try and balance the entire system rather than just you know, do your lateral step ups and do your your whatever terminal knee extensions. I think for me, like really going in on the secondary and tertiary roles of these these muscles is going to benefit. And whatever the stimulus adaptation is, frankly, that's not the goal, right? The goal isn't hypertrophy. The goal isn't yeah. strength. The goal of this is is probably more of time under tension. Um, so I think. By that designation, you'd lend more towards the hypertrophy side of things because yeah. the time under tension will usually lend itself to yeah. a metabolic stimulus that'll lead to more hypertrophy over time rather than just uh, high high intensity, low volume, which will build strength. Because we're trying to we're trying to make an adaptation on on like the tendinous attachment and, and having an effect on that medial patellofemoral ligament, which for a lot of people is a really abstract objective outcome to an exercise selection. Like most people think I either want to get strong or big, um, not that I want to accumulate enough time under tension to make some sort of increase in tensile strength of a ligament that's going to immediately retain the position of my patella. Most <laughs> people don't go in that deep. Yeah. But yeah, if, yeah. you know, if top end performance is truly your goal, then that's where you need to go to find it. Absolutely yeah. fascinating. And and is this, I mean, you, you highlighted the fact that it's probably contributed to your issue. Is this something that, that will now be... I mean, you're doing it now because, you know, you have the knee issue. Will this be something that you actually incorporate far more? Like, is this something that you overlooked in the past and, and, and now you've been forced to, through the acute pain, but been forced to, to look into it and, and realize that, uh, you know, you've got to balance it out by, by strengthening the adductors? Yeah, I mean, adductors were never really a focus outside of the role in pelvic stability, which... I thought for me, based off kind of common convention, would have been more than enough because everyone else everyone else I know doesn't do anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, I also have thought about this in the past. It could potentially be, I don't even pull sumo as an accessory. So I yeah, think right. a lot of guys that can go mix stance in, in a deadlifting block and, and pull in their off stance. Yeah. It's like pull sumo and have the requisite strength there might be better off. Um, yep. Looking back now in retrospect, um, 
I guess it wasn't out of neglect. I've only since kind of really dug in on the potential mechanism of correction as it's become apparent that I need to correct something and fast. Yeah. Um, but I think, um, I just think it's almost like the thing you're not doing is the thing you should, should be doing, which is usually the case across the board, but it's, you don't know what you don't know either. Right. So I get injured before every meet, every single meet. So I'm bruised and battered. Because it's like I just want to – I redline the intensity. I, I ramp up and I scale things to a point where I'm just putting so much pressure through the system. Mm. I'm just going to see where things go wrong. So mm. it's like I've been in this a year and a half. I haven't had the same injury twice, which is yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. you know I've incurred an injury. I've, re- I've rehabbed it to some – you know, and this is probably on par with the most detrimental or most severe that I've had as far as being this limited, this this close to a competition. Um, but I mean, I've showed up to the competition on, uh, on to a competition and couldn't squat body weight without pain, and yeah. was able to sort of triage and troubleshoot my way around it and, and get and get through a meet and still live to lift another day. Um, I just think, you know, a lot of people they just don't get so- sophisticated with asking questions and injuries. Yeah. They just think like it's almost this this inevitable badge of honor of going out on your shield, which. You know that will be my mindset like i will not be thinking about this then but a yeah. lot of people don't think about it at this stage of the game and then they just sort of chalk it up to like ah you know shake it off kid you'll get back yeah, out there yeah, and it's yeah. like nah we got to be more sophisticated than that mm. so jordo you might actually get to a stage where you've uh every preparation brings another weak point out that you then yeah. going away and address there'll be a preparation where nothing will go wrong yeah. and you, you you've just supermaned yourself that's that's I mean obviously the goal, um, but I mean at some point you got to lift weights, right? And that's <laughs> that's a big um, and that's a big sticking point with dealing with a lot of athletes, and and that's why I'm able from a clinical perspective to get pretty good buy-in um, as far as treatment goes. Is because listen, man, like you know it'd be one thing if I was you know 60 kilos being like ah eh, you know you should probably do this and that it's like what does he know right and not that he doesn't know like you could have a guy saying the exact same thing but the 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 psychological benefit of you know having the scars to prove it yeah uh, i think definitely helps but to that as well like getting to see a lot of the physical scars from people and then trying to unpack the mechanism of injury and where they're in balance makes me then take a hard look at myself and go oh shit yeah i didn't even consider that like so getting to see a lot of pipes that have burst will allow me to better predict where my training um, is going to indicate where I'm going to fall short the next time mm. I throw pressure through the system. So yeah. having, I mean, having a job centered around playing this this physiological and anatomical detective work yeah. has helped me, I think, avoid a lot, um, and then has also helped given me the tools to to help quantify effectiveness of measures maybe not found in research, but just based off fundamentals and understanding of biomechanics. Because I'll have people in my office that suffer from this now, and maybe before my less, um, the lack of empathy I would have entered the situation with, not have dealt with an injury like this myself, wouldn't have drove me to the depths to pursue it in the way I have. Um, So now I think, you know, adductor work will find its way into a rehabilitation protocol for one of my patients. So it's a nice sort of positive feedback loop is the Mm. more the more people get hurt, the more information I have, the more data points I have to interpret as a potential mechanism of injury and then a potential mechanism of correction, which benefits me, which benefits the patient. But also, I mean, if you know, getting this stuff out there like on podcasts and on YouTube and on Instagram, it's like 
if we can fortify and make you know the sport more resilient we're gonna a we're gonna see some crazy numbers in the next i mean we're just scratching the surface i think as far as like the potential to really push strength as an expression of you know mobility and stability but also too like we're gonna the more complex issues we're gonna see the more complex questions we're gonna have to ask and the when we start coming up with these answers it's like Maybe there will be a systematic a way, a systematic way to begin to uh, to approach training cycles based off morphology and presentation and and your your affinity or likelihood to succumb to certain injuries based off of your presentation. So uh, it's all just about getting the information out and then trying to f- funnel it back in in a way that we can have a lot of these data points to sort of help. Um, you know, almost do like um, you know, like they like they did with the human genome project. It's like you mean to tell me that if we have enough data points, we can tell if someone's going to have a certain percentage of like a, a, a life-ending illness, but we can't tell if your knees are going to hurt when you're squat based off your training. It's like yeah, yeah. there's so much data out there, right? So just trying to, to harbor and in-house and collect, disseminate information, and then you know recollect uh, new data points and then kind of interpret the, the findings. I mean, it's something that for me as a cl- like a clinician is really exciting. For me as an athlete is really exciting. And basically what we're going to be doing with Prescript moving forward is we're going to be really mining and, and interpreting large sets of data points as we move over to our new platform. So yeah. it, it's going to be something that should hopefully, you know, I don't want to use the word revolutionize because I think that's campy and cheesy, but just hopefully if we can start to squeeze two or three percent improvement out of each training cycle because top end lifters are not getting hurt where they otherwise would you know three percent of like a 950 pound deadlift over time you're going to start to see some really appreciable improvements in performance Mm. and i just uh, tom's got a question but i'll I'll jump in there and say it's particularly relevant for everyone because there's not a I mean, I, I see these elite powerlifters that, that are out with injuries. Like, I mean, even the, the genetically blessed and the gifted that structurally have seemingly bulletproof uh, rig, you know, even even you know, when they're pushing the extremes, you know, parts of them break down, even though they are genetically blessed. So, I mean, it is, it's not like there's the lower end powerlifters that it's relevant for. It's, it's across the board, you know, with, with, you know, maybe like you said, a, a more structured periodization where you are focusing on all these things in the future may may well, um, well, not not may it will translate to uh, improvement in numbers and less injuries. Yeah, I mean, even look outside like like powerlifting into conventional sports. Like how many how many just child protege kids that were you know fourteen, fifteen, regardless of sport coming up, they fall they fall victim to one injury, and it's like. Yeah. You know, there's there's a flattening of, of high performers at the end of these distributions, and it's like, what if, you know, Wayne Gretzky, you know, keeping a Canadian or oh geez, I don't know, what's who's like the Steve Irwin of cricket over there? I don't know who's like who's your Tangles. best. Tangles. I'm trying to keep it relevant to you guys, uh, yeah. but it's like you know these the like these LeBron James or these Michael Jordans or these you know whoever whatever your sport is whoever the superlative is in that particular sport. You know, they stand out, but maybe maybe we could come up with an athlete that stands out at a skill set so far beyond them, and then the average becomes the average skill level is that of like a, a Michael Jordan or or a LeBron James or whatever. Yeah. But just because 
the barrier of entry into high performance isn't this like you know this 12th grade acl injury that kept this kid back like who who knows where that kid could have gone and how many kids are out there that tell that exact same story you know pressure's on they're in that they're in that final year before going into uni and then you know shit goes awry and they succumb to this injury it's like the amount of times i've heard that story and it's like you know i'm not saying that every kid that gets hurt is the next michael jordan but if there's you know seven Michael Jordans in the league and someone's got to stand out, now we're talking mm. increase in sports performance. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Look, I was going to ask Jordo. Um, I'm not sure what your experience with Olympic lifters is like, but how does knee pain present for an athlete like that who spends more time in end ranges and visibly to look in at? The yeah. Has the has the VMO and the and the big adductor and all that kind of stuff, do they typically have a better uh, orthopedic profile in terms of knee pain or is it, is it still a, a common injury? It's still common. Uh, and the common thing I'll see a lot with the Olympic lifting community is a decrease of internal rotation. Like you watch these guys catch a snatch. And I mean, Olympic lifters, are, in my opinion, are, are some of the best athletes because their proprioception the proprioception required from an Olympic lifter based on a power lifter based off of like um, the reactivity and speed, which mm-hmm. I think are components and coordination are components that that is what makes the Olympic lifts very transferable into common strength and conditioning profiles like, or, or programming because yeah. that level of coordination and, and timing and speed is standard issue in in conventional sports whether you know you're, you're playing cricket or rugby or or, or yeah. basketball a lot of the game is propped up on skill not so much strength but olympic lifting does is able to train skill under load a lot better than just going out and scrimmaging right yeah um, but olympic lifting is the difference between you know i know a lot of guys that are fast on a barbell like they pull aggressive, they, they squat aggressive, they bench real fast off the chest. But Olympic lifts are the difference between fast bars and fast athletes, right? So yes. what I see a lot with Olympic lifters is when you watch them in the bottom of a squat, like watch the Olympics, you know, uh, next time they come around and watch some of these guys, how quickly they get under a bar and how little that bar actually moves, but how fast they dive underneath it. So their knees will be their hips will be in internal rotation because their hips are past the point of 90 degrees of flexion that's when hip stabilizer muscles actually reverse their function and go from external rotators to internal rotators so if you're missing integrity and internal rotation or the ability to internally rotate that's where you see a lot more kind of wear and tear over time like the acute knee injury based off of like the self-limiting loading parameters of maximal weight in deep hip and knee flexion because you know everyone can snatch and clean a lot or people can only snatch and clean a, a lot less than what they're actually squatting so that's why olympic lifting programming the bulgarian method and things like that are going to be high frequency because the overall stimulus on the nervous system is a lot lower than hitting a one rep max back squat or working at high 90s or mid 90 percent of your back squat where it's yeah. like you can work at a mid 90 percent of your snatch and it's not like maybe under you know it's like 40 percent of the load of your 95 percent of your squat yeah so yeah. it's it's more so kind of like an erosion of the shore over time which becomes a little easier to screen for because there's not that catastrophic moment 
an Olympic lifter will rarely, a high-end Olympic lifter will rarely have that catastrophic moment. Yeah. If, it, if it's bad, it's usually like viral worthy and it's blowing up your Facebook feed. But yeah. by and large, it's going to be in training when you're lifting sub-max weights. It's like if, if your range of motion and particularly I find it in internal rotation because they get such depth in, in, in hip flexion, that's something that we can constantly be screening for and constantly be programming to maintain that fringe range of motion that they're going to end up loading, albeit sub-maximally, but with a higher frequency than a powerlifter. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. cool. So, um, and basically there, you're, you're actually saying it it may well, uh, going back to deadlifting in, in the adductor strength and um, maybe if you, you did deadlift like a girly and uh, do the sumo stance, you, you, you might not have got the knee injury. Yeah, they're that, all cheaters. That's <laughs> it, cheaters, exactly. Another Girly qu- cheaters. Yeah. Another question on the uh, on the knee pain, Jordo. Um, see if you can what you make of this one. So my I had oh, yeah. uh, patello. This is a consultation. <laughs> yes, yeah, cons- I should be paying you for this. Point of this eh? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I got um, you know what they did when I went in first is they put me. This was years ago. Put me on a treadmill and, and mm-hmm. filmed me walking and running. Said, okay, you're internally rotating. You need orthotics in your shoes. And so I went down that path. Expensive too, that one, isn't it? Expensive. And initially I noticed some some relief. So I was like, okay, this is good. This is working. So this is, I'll do that thing. And then I end up having thicker and thicker shoes and mm. higher and higher orthotics. They're like the 70s in the end, those big quad hoppers. It was ridiculous. You know? And then yeah. I... Um, platforms, eh? Platforms, Plats yeah. and platforms. And then I had spent time in Burma. And I was walking around for, you know, months in just thongs and doing a lot of walking. And I came yeah. back and all of a sudden my legs my knees and everything just felt really really good and then i started doing everything in bare feet i started doing some running in bare feet and all this kind of stuff and my my lower body my knees and my hips and everything feel better than they have having spent so much time doing things barefoot i'd just like to get your your thoughts on that jordo yeah there's you know what there's a great book on barefoot running called born to run by christopher mcdougall i believe is his name it's hard. So, I mean, Aussies, by and large, are, are maybe of a population of people that spend less time with shoes on than the rest of the world, uh, at least less of the developed world. If you've been wearing these pillow top cushions on your feet as your bones and your structure have adapted through your, you know, your developmental periods as far as your, your anatomy and your, and your physiology goes. Yeah. Going full stop into, you know, minimalist shoes or barefoot, especially under high impact, like this is something that was prevalent in the running community where people were, you know, they were ditching their ASICs and they were ditching their their new balance and going for this very minimalist thing. It's like Far you fingers, yeah. you were you grew up running on these things that purposely reduce the amount of stress. And that's reducing stress through what we're assuming is a normal gait cycle and a gait stride, which for you know how accessible running is as a as a methods of staying fit or uh, or as a hobby a lot of people you can kind of bet your bottom dollar aren't going to have you know the the I don't like to use the word optimal but um, the most efficient gait cycle the most efficient stride mechanics mm. so every time that you know it, again we're lowering down if we think of it like lifting weights we're lowering down the resistance a lot but we're amping up the amount of volume so Running is, is is something where you can accrue a ton of volume if each step is considered a rep, but mm. the inevitable ground forces that are going to reverberate through that chain as you run are going to like magnify your body weights uh, in your your body weight in force 
uh, force multipliers at each joint. So yeah. I, I don't know the hard, I don't remember the hard numbers, so don't hold me to it. But it's something like it'll be two times the force of body weight through the knees or through the ankles, four times through the knees, and six times through the hips, or something like that. Yep. Uh, where it's you know if you your bones have developed, and not even your bones, like think of your accommodating soft tissue, like the ligaments of your ankle or the meniscus in your knee or the discs in your spine, even which can from that that reverberation of ground forces benefit over time from from that um, that mild stress adaptation. Like it's not it's something that can be can be trained, kind of like in a like a way a muscle can be trained. But over time, if that force gets put to bone, bone will solidify, discs will solidify, cartilaginous tissue will solidify. Basically, anything that's collagen is is on the table as far as adapting goes. So, yeah. the minimalist shoes. I guess maybe from a more applicable standpoint to, or like no shoes at all even, I like to do all my stability work for my hips with no shoes on at all. Because what, like my my Nike Romaleos, my Olympic lifting shoes that I squat in, are purposely meant to be like, they're like ski boots, man. Like they are so solid that I'm externalizing that need for internal stability to the apparatus of the shoe. Where it's like if I'm trying to you know lift extra physiological weight and I want to have extra physiological stability, I'm going to make sure that all that stability stimulus I'm putting on my hips pre-workout or in a recovery session is going to be, um, you know, without like walking on Bosu balls or anything like that, as as natural and as controlled within my own physiology as like it, it can be. So. Yep. As far as like bringing it into the confines of powerlifting, it's like ditch the shoes when you warm up. Sure. And you know what? There's some guys out there. Some man, fuck God, Aussies, man. Oh, Will Crozier is yeah, yeah. likely to take the 110 class this year at Pro Raw. He won it last year. He's an absolute unit. He's based out of um, he's based out of Sunny Coast, PTC Sunny Coast. Yeah. yeah. And he'll squat 300 kilos, no shoes. He prefers it. Here's a guy that's built his strength through the arches of his feet, through the knees, through the hips, through the spine, and solidified that. But if you took someone that is used to kind of that cushy base or that 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 reinforced shoe yep. at and again yeah. from running, we're 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 scaling down the resistance or we're scaling down or we're scaling up the resistance and down the volume. So it's like, you know, just as a of someone who has run their whole life running barefoot probably has no problem running barefoot it's like this guy's built all of his strength squatting barefoot so Mm. it's like for me it's it it needs to be a sliding scale if it's an adaptation you're looking to make over time then yeah you know slowly start to peel back the amount of the amount of like force reduction that your shoes are providing you but going full stop from like if you're an avid runner going from like your your asics or your really cushy pillow top shoes to Mm. something minimalistic could be really detrimental. I find it interesting that they do. You didn't have any structural instabilities, no meniscus injuries or anything like that. No. See, that's that's where I think. Yeah, like you you alluded to that the the orthotics were a little bit expensive, and I think that was the motivating factor. Yeah, it was yeah. just a money grab. Whereas there is a time and a place, and again, not speaking in absolute truths, but I, me having very, um, you know, I've torn both medial meniscus. So propping up the inside of my archway that would otherwise be collapsed by a structural stability of the knee that can't be replaced, externalizing that in that situation, like I, I have orthotics. Like I, I'll, I'll wear orthotics in all of my shoes because I 
I don't want to go in and get a meniscectomy and have no meniscus in my knee and nothing propping up yeah. that that inside of the knee from going valgus on me and you know and that's accumulation that's valgus from every step or that's valgus under you know a 300 plus kilo squat mm. so it's you know knowing when what intervention is going to be right for you isn't it's, it's situational and it's based off proper assessment the orthotics one is a question i get posed a lot because it's fuck, man from a business standpoint they're good money makers mm. but unless you have a lack of internal structural stability that for the most part cannot be outdone or outrun by improving function then yeah you, you don't need orthotics but if you have orthotics and they're just arbitrarily designated to you because someone a physio watched you walk it's like we can improve the function of the hip to externally rotate and, and pronate or and sort of make that three-point foot rather than just jumping right to it but again if you have structural pathology there's nothing wrong with externalizing that that stability through through okay. an orthotic but uh, again it's a case-by-case -case basis yeah, all right well let's let's oh. have a look at a, another couple of uh just before we wrap it up a couple of other uh intriguing points in the in the whole knee pain thing yeah. what about the knee going forward over the toe when, oh, we, yes. when we're doing lunges or, or that's a no-no tommy yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, again, so the knee over the toe is not going to be so much representative of the acute angle of the tibia versus the femur, because in order for that femur to get into that position, our hip is going to have to be in a, in, a, in a decent amount of flexion. So as we trade off structural stability for functional stability, the knee over the toe debate, as long as the heel is still on the ground and we have adequate dorsiflexion to get into that acute knee angle position, it's more so, again, it comes back to hip stability in this case because, yeah, we're in deep knee flexion, but primarily our issue is going to be the deep hip flexion. Our, is our femur going to be stable as you know the load contributing component to that angle of the knee? Is that femur going to be stable in that relatively structurally unstable position of the hip required to get into that acute angle at the knee? So knee over the toe yeah fine if your hips are stable enough absolutely it's something a lot of people should strive for then the only issue becomes um how much hamstring strength do you have because you know in that acute of knee flexion of the knee going over the toe if our heel is still on the ground the hamstring plays a role in assisting the acl or being the functional component or role of the acl in retaining that tibia's position on the hamstring too much anterior translation in that position yeah you're going to blow your acl but as long as your hamstrings are a loaded enough which means your heels in the ground kind of connecting that posterior chain from the plantar fascia up to the ischial tuberosity yeah. then there should be no issues but understanding where, if we put too much pressure in that system, where potential downfalls might be and training those accordingly is, is paramount to someone that is looking to, you know, load fringe and ranges of motion like that. Okay. Uh, so general rule of thumb there, did I, did I hear keeping the heel down as, 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 deep in you, as deep as you can go or knee over the toe? But the caveat is the knee needs to be on the ground because that's going to recruit the hamstring the greatest and, and stabilize the, 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 the patella. Yeah, that's so General. hamstring to retain the position of the tibia as to not translate too far forward and put stress on the ACL in like a, a structural component of doing that same action. 
But stability of the hip is going to have to express itself through the foot to generate torque and close in that system. So yep. think, you know, knees out as you go through deep hip flexion, but knees out as an expression of external rotation of the hips. Yep. So I usually cue the foot into that like tented active arch, but cue that position from the hip. So I think the deeper that we go into hip the knee flexion, the more we should be building that arch in the foot. Because if we're doing that actively, we're going to be recruiting a lot of that posterior fiber, the glute med, which is going to be by role of you know neurological designation is going to be what stabilizes the femur and therefore stabilizes the position of that deep knee flexion in deep hip flexion, which is going to be structurally unstable from the hip, which is going to leave us subject to injury at the knee. Lovely. Okay, and uh, what about the old uh, sissy squat? You know, on the on the tippy toes, uh, is that knee uh, damage waiting to happen, or what? You, what about that? Uh, you know what? If we can get into a position unloaded, we should be able to slowly begin to load it. Um, and I just think it's the slowly and to what end. Like, I mean, what's the goal, right? Like, is the goal of it to build bigger quads? Then yeah. I don't hate it as an exercise. Um, can you overdo it and cross a threshold into irreparable damage quicker with an exercise like that? Yeah, for sure. But mm. I almost, I'll parallel that to the behind the neck press. The sissy squat is to the lower body what the behind the neck press is <laughs> to, uh, to the upper body. Very good. Very good. All right. One more. Uh, I've got knee pain, so I need to hop on the foam roller and release the ITB. Can't release the ITB. Right. Simple as Simple so, so, let's so all that pain that we go through, pointless. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, there it goes. Reappropriate your mechanism of correction. Your iliotibial band is an inert band of soft tissue that relays five of six muscle actions of the hip at the knee. Everything but adduction is going to be relayed by a muscle that can uses the ITB to transfer force and express the action of that contraction of the hip. So TFL, glute med, glute max, all are gonna tie in at the trochanter of the femur, the greater trochanter of the femur as it sort of blends. So it's like the IT is almost like, it would be tantamount to my calves are tight so I'm gonna bludgeon my, um, I'm gonna bludgeon my Achilles tendon. It's like tendons and ligaments and fascia are not neurologically wired to respond to deep pressure stimulus. It's kind of like the, the overarching principle you should take away from that. Okay. What happens, and the, the, my proposed mechanism of at least partial correction, because people report a, a certain level of relief when doing it. Yeah, yeah, that's but what I was going to say. You're not releasing your ITB. Let's think of the major freaking extender of the knee and largest of the four muscles of the quad that lies just deep to that, that fascia, right? Like it's, your vastus lateralis oh, yeah. should be the, your biggest muscle of your quad. So if you're getting a neurological, a transient neurological release by applying a, just a deep pressure stimulus to that side of the leg, then yeah, you're more than likely just have, you have tight quads, which is the correction you're making or the, yeah. the change in perception in which you're altering. Um, based off of based off of applying that deep pressure stimulus. Very cool. That makes a lot of sense. And we're busting yeah. a few myths here we're with, with Jordo. Very yeah, good, very awesome. good. All right, mate. Well, that that probably uh, is is a pretty good uh, intro to the knee. Uh, covered the knee, and we'll wrap things up there, Jordan. So we're actually going to uh, hassle you again uh, 
next week to cover the, the we're gonna the big crescendo, the big climax at the end. We're gonna go through, which you know is 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 you know back at Thou Shalt Not Name. I, I did ruptured disc training with someone back in the day, so <laughs> something that's uh, close to home for me. The lower back and um, associated, you know, how to strengthen it, things to be aware of, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, no, sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. To find out more about the muscle doc, what should our listeners do? Um, yeah, so www.pre-script.com is where you'll find me uh, the majority of the day. Um, Instagram at pre underscore script uh, and also Instagram uh, at the underscore muscle underscore doc. And you know, for whatever reason you're listening to this and you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, themuscledoc.com is a good landing point uh, to contact me or book an appointment. Um, yeah, I think that about wraps it up as far as the social media footprint goes. And of course, uh, you know, let's not forget you're, you're quite partial to uh, an espresso. Uh, so, you know, if you want to hit you up and uh, grab an espresso when you're in San Fran, uh, feel free. I've got big shoes to fill on that. Unless your name is Well, I don't know if they're up for it. Yeah, true, true, awesome. true. All right, man. Uh, absolutely awesome to chat. Look forward to uh, next week. Nice work, Jordan. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Mate. Uh, yes. Tell you what, Rodan, it's funny, um like it makes total sense what Jordo was talking about, you know, if you look at a roll up the shorts and look at a uh, power lifter from mm. just a few inches above the knee to the all the way down to the bottom of the foot and you wouldn't even realise that they train. <laughs> yeah. But then there's so much yeah. mass through the Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but also but, but how the um, a lot through the hind quarter as yes, well. Yes, a lot of mass through the hind quarters and you know where they like finish a horse. off the, the top of the lift. But it makes perfect sense, and that that's all cool. But then you know it makes a lot of sense to what you're doing with your guys with uh, hypertrophy specific training, and yeah, you know if they're up there in the board shorts, then some some of them won't train legs at all. Yeah, you know. Look, I um interesting on that point. I have uh, succumbed to a few saying, you know, pissing and moaning that they get you know thinner and thinner legs over the legs. course of the prep. Yeah. So. You know, I, I sort of rationalized it and justified with the, uh, certainly good with the cutting phase, just that increased, not that I programmed for increased energy expenditure, yep. but there is a bit of bang for the buck with a, you know, five or six sets of leg press, but but I do not get creative in any way, shape or form. It's just pure leg press at the end yeah. or leg curl, hip extension, just to give the uh, the lower body a little bit of oomph. But yep. uh, but yeah, interesting stuff, mm-hmm. interesting stuff. Well, he's uh, he's fantastic, Jordo, and as usual, a lot of these knee problems can stem from hip, yeah. instability and glutes mm. and blah 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 all that kind of stuff so mm. we'll get him back on once again to do the, the lower the big, back the big climax at the end yes and I'm sure we'll get him I mean we've had uh, awesome feedback for for the muscle doc so um, I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll combine forces uh, to some capacity Ooh, in the yeah. future I'm thinking uh, I think we alluded to it in one of these episodes but the you know the hypertrophy sure. biomechanics and uh, really get him to, to, to top to bottom of the body and, and what exercises are worth doing? How yep. do we isolate this, that? How do we focus on this? So yep. um, We're getting the wind-up from Cam, oh. man. I think we're running out of Chariots of Fire. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs> we'll uh, talk to you next week. Bye.